Hey everyone, our friends from artsreligionculture.org who we interviewed in episode 14 are having an amazing gathering this spring in Boston on March 9th and 10th. This is going to be an awesome time in which creativity, imagination, and spirituality come out and play together. The Rising is going to be there and we'd love to have you join us. You can register at theopoeticsconference.org and listeners of The Rising get 10% off the registration fee with the code THERISING. We hope to see you there. We want to know, how can spirituality transform our social movements? And how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Welcome to The Rising. I'm Chelsea MacMillan. And I'm Rebecca Burnt. We're spiritual directors, activists, intuitives, and we're exploring the intersection between spirituality and social change. So something that often comes up in spiritual conversation is the use of psychedelics, which is yes. what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> yes. And you and I have had some, I think interactions with people mm-hmm. who both of us come from, you know, I think contemplative backgrounds and also religious backgrounds. And, and that's still a part of our lives, like the the sort of contemplative traditions within some of the, the mainstream religions. And um, we have a lot of friends who are really part of that world. And we've had some conversations sometimes with them about psychedelics. I think um, we'll get into it into the podcast a little bit, but sometimes the the fear or um, prejudice around psychedelics that comes up. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we'll hear a little bit about how psychedelics have um, often created spiritual experiences for people and, and things that like look a lot like mystical experiences. Um, And there are some people who are like, Oh, well you can just have your mystical experiences on psychedelics. And other people are like, Oh, well you have to meditate to have your mystical experiences. And we're going to talk to two people today who kind of, put those two together, um, psychedelics and spirituality. Um, but there's like a lot of controversy around this. And, and I think that both you and I have like received a lot of pushback and I mean, what's interesting, like, I mean, cause you've had psychedelic experiences and, and you're going to share those, but I haven't. Um, and so I often find myself sort of like, I feel like I could be like the devil's advocate in each group, like you know, like when I'm talking to people who use a lot of psychedelics, I'm like, you know, what are you doing to sort of um, back up that experience or ground yourself or, um, but then when I'm with other people who are super traditional, it's like, come on, what do you know about psychedelics? And like, why can't people have experiences without meditating for hours and hours? And um, right. You know, I've I've talked to lots of people who've had great experiences right. having used LSD or mushrooms or ayahuasca. And um, anyway, I'm curious to hear some of your experiences because you, I think, are kind of in both camps. Yeah. Like you're sort of firmly planted. Um, yeah. Well, and I mean, like I, 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 I think I say it in the podcast, I there is a commonality. We, we talked about this a little bit between, like I had a, I, I was on a 10-day Vipassana retreat and had a really intense experience of kind of ego dissolution where I felt all like energy just flowing through my body in a really profound way. I I felt like I could feel all of my nerve endings and um, 
like just everything that was occurring in my body at that moment to the point where I was almost dissolving and, and becoming mm-hmm. one with like the energy around me. Um, because as I began to like feel these things really intensely, it was like, I could also feel things around me and I could feel my own energy and force field and I could feel myself direct it in certain, um, ways and like towards certain people. And at first it felt awesome. It was like really mm-hmm. cool, but then it started to become very scary. And, um, oh, wow. I started to like, I couldn't shut it off. Um, and I, it became really terrifying to feel like I don't, I, I, I'm not sure where the boundary between my energy field and and the rest of the world ends. And it's Mm. like, I'm feeling and sensing all these things and I don't know what to do with it. And, um, that was that, that retreat is it's like whole own story. Like there's a, there's a whole story around that, that I don't need to go Mm. into right now, but it, it was, it was both like a really profound and blissful and also kind of terrifying experience. Mm -hmm. Um, that in that setting, I didn't really feel like there was a whole lot of support, like to figure out what do mm-hmm. I do with this. And that ego death thing is something that's talked a lot about. I mean, sometimes I can't tell, or I can't even remember if someone's talking about a psychedelic experience or right. like a meditative experience right. because, and that's, and you'll talk about that a lot in Buddhism, like trying to surpass the ego and, and yeah. And it can be terrifying when you have to still function in this world. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I also did have experiences of just like really um, feeling like intense emotions during that retreat. And, and if anyone's mm. ever done like a 10 day Cuenca Vipassana retreat, like they, they talk about like you, you're, they don't call them traumas. They, they say sankaras, but like essentially this shit is going to come up and you're going to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and the same thing happens in, I've also done 10 day centering prayer retreat. Um, that for me was personally was a better environment because I felt like there was just more of a sense of gentleness and like being held by this really loving Mm -hmm. presence and by, by the women who are running that retreat that made it a little easier for me to have some of these like intense, like, like I would have rage come up and just like all sorts of like intense emotions to be able to, to deal with it a little bit better. Um, -hmm. but when I did ayahuasca, I, it was like some people have like really profound and beautiful experiences on, on ayahuasca. Like, like they'll have this story of like, at first, like you, it's really terrifying and, and horrible. And well, at first it like seems cool and then it turns like scary. And then like, you sort of have this like breakthrough and, um, some people have that trajectory. I had like three nights of just feeling like I, I died every single time. Wow. It was like so wow. intense. Um, I actually had one person after the first night, there was another man who was with me. Um, we did it. We didn't know each other, but we just happened to be both doing it together with the shaman for the three nights. And after the first night, he was just like, oh, I'm just so inspired because I had done it once before and he hadn't. He's like, you're just so willing to go into your all of like, I don't know what he told you're suffering. You're just willing to mm-hmm. face suffering so bravely. And I, and I kind of laughed I, and it was like, I was really, it was really lovely that he said that, that he said it was inspiring to him, but I was also <laughs> like, I'm not trying to suffer over here. It's just like happening. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I did two more nights of that. And I kept oh thinking like, Oh, at some point, like it'll be better. Every night was worse than the last. Um, oh. and it was funny cause the, the shaman said to me, she's like, Oh yeah. She's like, you're a healer. This is how, this is the healers always wow. suffer the most. Yeah. like this it was like this sucks I don't want this yeah um and it was there were it was profound in a lot of ways and it also I really had a sense afterwards that like 
Uh, well, I mean, I was told, you know, because you, you do, like, hear voices and talk to spirits and stuff when, when you're in it. And just really, like, uh, this is going to take some time for you to integrate. You need to, like, really, and we, we get into this in the podcast, um, you need to, like, show up every day and do your spiritual practice <laughs> in order to integrate this. Wow. Which sometimes I'm better about than others. But, um, like, integrating whatever just happened to you on this three-night trip is going to take time. So it wasn't like this moment of instant enlightenment, like, oh, now I'm like healed of my wounds and my traumas. Like I, it was like kind of really disorienting and terrifying. And also, I remember also being told while I was going through all this, I was like, why am I suffering? Cause I was suffering very intensely. And this man who was, this man who was with me was just like really picking up on that. And it was funny because at one point on the second night, I could feel his love come towards me in a really beautiful way. Like I was like, oh, and I was like crying. I was like, he's, he's sending so much love to me as I'm suffering. But I I remember just hearing um, at one point I, I had these like women ancestors that were kind of with me as I was suffering. And I almost felt like I was laboring to give birth. And I was like, why am I suffering so much? And they said, because you can handle it. I was like, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> but yeah, that was kind of... A compliment from your spirit guide. Yeah, totally, totally. That, so that was, that was. I mean, there's more I could say. I won't go into all of it. But it was it was pretty intense and terrifying. And I think if I hadn't already had a foundation of spirituality and spiritual practice, it probably, yeah. I would not have been able to deal with it. Um, and I and you might not have gone as deeply anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, place. I think that's probably true. I, th- I think I think there's yeah. some truth to that. But, um, yeah. Yeah. It sounds so profound. And I mean, and I think that you kind of touch on this, that there, there is a reason that, that people have a lot of caution around this because, and I mean, I've, I have seen probably the majority of people I have talked to who have, um, done psychedelics, especially done in intentional ways, um, or who are serious spiritual practitioners, um, proclaim the benefits of it. And, and not just like that they're going to do it willy nilly all the time, but like, but that it has been an important part of their spiritual path, um, and the realizations that they've had. But I've also seen people firsthand experience some really, um, scary shit and, and they haven't known how to reintegrate. And, 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 and I mean, I'm like really careful that like, I know that we live in this sort of agreed upon reality and I don't necessarily believe that everyone has to agree to live in this reality, Mm -hmm. you know, but I do think that when you don't know, like when you're sort of not in this agreed upon reality, um, that can be really challenging and hard and, and it is easier in a way to stay in this agreed upon reality. Well, yeah. And ultimately we do kind of have to live in the physical material world and we have to find ways to integrate these experiences into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and I also, I want to mention that this, but this also happens after prolonged meditation retreats. Yeah. Um, In fact, I would love to, there's a, there's a, there are people who've done research into some of the darker darker aspects of the contemplative meditative life and some of some of the the disorientation that happens and I I know like last year there was a woman who in Pennsylvania who committed suicide after a Vipassana retreat Um, and these things happen so which is just why it's important to to have sort of a community and other Mm -hmm. structures of support around them Um, and we'll talk about that a lot today yes absolutely I think one thing I'm curious about, and 
how to put it? Like, I'm curious about this desire that humans have to, like, this search for meaning. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that it, it manifests in both um, religious life and, and spiritual practice, as well as doing drugs. Yeah. And, I mean, in lots of little ways, too. I mean, you could say that, like, like having sex and, and yeah. you know, having social, you know, like socializing with your friends and things like I that. I mean, but. Chelsea, it's almost like there's some sort of consciousness in the universe that wants us to experience transcendence and provides yeah. a variety of ways for us to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> right? So what benefits do each of these practices have? Yeah. What um, what cautions should be taken with each of these tools? How can they be integrated? Um, we're going to explore and, all of that. And ultimately, and I love Colin, that Colin touches on this towards the end, ultimately, how does it bring us back out into the world? Yeah. Not just to like sort of sit here and have a, a navel gazing like personal experience mm-hmm. that only is ever that, but how does it actually bring us back into community and connection with others and a desire to build the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible? Yeah, that's what it's all about. Yep. <laughs> So, um, great. Here's our interview with Catherine McLean and Colin Pugh. Catherine McLean is a psychological scientist, teacher, and meditator. In her academic research at UC Davis and Johns Hopkins University, she studied how psychedelics and mindfulness meditation can promote beneficial, long-lasting changes in personality, well-being, and brain function. In New York, she co-founded and directed the Psychedelic Education and Continuing Care Program focusing on group integration for psychedelic users and training workshops for clinicians. She currently lives on an organic farm and is preparing to be a study therapist on the upcoming Phase 3 trial of MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. Learn more at KatherineMcLean.org. Colin Pugh is the organizer for the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society, a community dedicated to educating individuals on how to use psychedelics effectively and safely for personal and spiritual growth. Colin also has a strong interest in contemplative Christianity, Buddhism, psychedelics, and political change. He currently works as a freelance product manager and lives in Brooklyn, New York. Well, hello, um, Catherine and Colin. Thanks so much for joining us today on The Rising. We're really excited to um, hear all that you have to say about a conversation that's actually kind of controversial. We'd just love to hear from each of you about how you came to do this work um, and be interested in psychedelics. So maybe, Catherine, you could start off by telling us your story uh, about how you came to it. Yeah, sure. Uh The story has, you know, a very short version and a very long version. Uh, The short version, which I didn't tell for a long time because I was an academic scientist and there are kind of unspoken rules about studying psychedelics and spirituality. You're really not supposed to talk about your own personal experiences because that changes the public's view and other colleagues' view of you as being objective. But The very short story is um, I spent most of my life not interested in drugs and alcohol. And then when I got to college, kind of went all in and just found it to be very exciting and adventurous. And I had a lot of, I think, recreational, you know, fun experiences, but also some pretty profound experiences in nature, uh, mostly with mushrooms and MDMA. 
at the time I was very obsessed with the brain, so I wanted to understand how the brain, how the human brain could support experiences like I was having and like I was reading about in some of these mystical texts. And that just became, I mean, an, an obsession for, you know, 10 or so years that kind of deviated at different points. But um, my own interest intersected with reality when the Johns Hopkins research team published the psilocybin study in 2006, showing that a chemical experience with psilocybin in a laboratory could occasion uh, full-blown mystical experiences. And as soon as I saw that, I knew where I was going in terms of my career path. And so it was both a lot of luck and kind of very, you know, coincidental timing and uh, just a, a kind of a fascination with psychedelics and the brain. And then, of course, it's developed since then. Um, I'm now no longer at Hopkins. I, I'm a full-time mom and live on a farm, so my world has kind of shifted again. But, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how, I, how it all got started. And I'm wondering, do you have any, like, uh, specific story or anything about perhaps an experience that really opened you up to um, the power of these psychedelics that you might be willing to tell us? Um, you know, what's coming up in my mind is a lot of visions of this really dark forest and cemetery that was on our college campus. And it felt like a sacred space, obviously a taboo, you know, secret space, you know, being at night in a cemetery, you know, you're not supposed to be there. It's, you know, it's kind of off limits, you know, we're technically trespassing, but certain places like that. And then there was another family owned garden in the town where I went to college and we would also go there at night. And both of those places seemed to have a kind of numinous quality that I could access on either mushrooms or MDMA. And that felt, it felt familiar. It felt close to, I can't even say it was similar to what I was reading about, but it felt closer to a reality that I wanted to learn about. And then that was kind of juxtaposed with these recreational experiences that were also very exciting and fun and adventurous. But if I think about those sacred experiences in those spaces at nighttime, I, I feel like that's kind of closer to the trajectory that I've followed since then. And then honestly, it wasn't until I left my job in academia and in a pretty deep space of grief and working through some very old memories when I encountered a person who actually knew how to hold a religious mushroom ceremony. And that experience completely changed my life. And I felt like I had been dabbling with things that I had no understanding of before that. And those are, those experiences are harder to talk about, but I would say it's kind of like two chapters. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit just about the impact it had on your life as far as coming to that, um, experiencing that more religious uh, mushroom ceremony? It, it felt like I found, it finally, like I had finally found a religion that spoke to me and that I felt like I could be a member of. And I have a Buddhist practice. I grew up Christian. Um, you know, I've kind of dabbled in various other practices and yoga. I had a Ganesh, you know, deity on my home altar for a long time. But if there is a name for what that mushroom religion is, it felt the closest to me and, and to kind of what I was doing here on earth. It felt mm -hmm. like all of a sudden, all of the different parts of me were woven 
into reality rather than kind of standing outside of reality and trying to figure out what I was doing here. I finally felt like I was part of things. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then, I mean, speaking about it, the, the sadness or not really nostalgia because I can still access that, but it, it, the sadness comes up because I don't feel that all the time. And I feel like that's the challenge of a spiritual life is like you can have these peak experiences but it seems to be a real challenge to feel that all the time. Yeah, for sure. Oh man, I have so many questions about like the science and uh, everything, but I wonder if we can um, bring in Colin before we get really going. And hey, Colin, <laughs> um, maybe you could tell us a bit about your story and and, uh, and then maybe how you two met. Sure. Um, spiritually, I grew up Catholic and confirmed, but I wasn't really into the religious aspects of it, but I did feel like I had a connection to some God and um, St. Michael, the archangel is like a big influence for me when I was like in high school, but then I kind of lost faith around late high school, early college. And I didn't get into uh, spirituality really again. Basically I considered like spirituality, something that, um, I was done exploring or something that was like an old part of me growing up. But I also, like Catherine, didn't really do much drinking or drug taking in high school. And also in college, I didn't do too much of it either. I did dabble. Obviously, I had some times where I've used drugs and drank and stuff. Um, but they were few and far between, especially with the drugs. I don't think I really took something until like senior year of college or something like that. Um, and I took acid uh, a few times, LSD, in college and had some pretty profound experiences where a lot of things were suddenly tied together for me. But um, I didn't actually associate it with spirituality at all. And it, nothing about it really revived my interest in the idea or the experience of God or anything like that. And so where spirituality and psychedelics actually coincided for me, because they were kind of two separate things. Spirituality was a historic chapter in my life that I thought I'd move beyond, and psychedelics were more of a psychological interest. Um, I had a experience with MDMA or Molly or ecstasy, but really MDMA, pure MDMA, at a party and it was really relaxed party so I went to kind of just hang out by myself while this drug came up and I just felt like a lot of layers that had been kind of caked over myself were kind of like my heart or something like that were opened up and I felt immediately in the presence of something divine maybe God or something but um, it felt like coming home to something and I can go on with like different psychedelic experiences, but um, I started to have kind of sober experiences that were similar to that MDMA experience that persisted longer and were spontaneous, just kind of feeling like I'm in the presence of something, like very viscerally, very real, and something like pervasively loving, or maybe pervasive is the wrong word to mix with love, but just kind of this all-encompassing love and it seemed like this new kind of relationship with the word God or the idea of God 
and I can go on different experiences and I've been following kind of dabbling in spirituality ever since and like Buddhist path and like Christian paths and all that. Um, and eventually I was asked to lead the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society because the person who founded it stepped down. And so I organized that and I met Catherine through a community event for members of the MAPS community. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And we met through a, a potluck and we kind of, uh, we became, you know, superficial friends then, you know, like, hey, let's friend each other on Facebook and talk and all that. But um, eventually, and we can get into this or not get into this as much as little as you want, I had a, a really powerful experience on LSD last summer that felt extremely religious or spiritual or something. And that's when Catherine heard about my experience and helped me out with it because it was difficult. That's when we kind of became close. So here we are now. I'm so struck um, by, well, first of all, by similarities in your stories and that both of you, I think, used the phrase um, coming home or feeling like you were something sort of made sense to you. And and it sounds like both of you sort of woke up to these deeper, deeper spiritual experiences or um, like that psychedelics helped you wake up more to this like mysticism. And maybe like there was a hunger, like it sort of woke up a hunger in you for some more. I mean, like, because Colin, I know you to be like one of the most like well-read people on religion and spirituality that I know. Like every time oh, we talk, wow. you're like full of all this like new stuff that you're learning. And it seemed like that sort of woke up in you after using psychedelics. And so I'm just like so curious because it sounds like the work that you two have come together around is sort of the intersection of psychedelics and spirituality and maybe doing it in a more intentional way, if if that's the way. That, I don't know if that's the way you would put it, but... Um, I would love to hear kind of where you two come together on that. I think one thing that differentiates my approach and Catherine's approach, and I think we have a lot of overlap, and I'd like to think we're kind of spiritual colleagues in this way, is that um, psychedelics and spirituality have usually been associated with kind of like narcissism maybe, or just kind of like new agey stuff that is more focused on ego development than kind of selflessness or something or more charitable works. And I think what Catherine and I are interested in is where the spirituality that psychedelics are helping invigorate is kind of the spirituality that, uh, I guess a reflection of the best parts of like religion, like saints or, you know, actual like living like Jesus did or trying to imitate what he did or the Buddha, um, rather than just, you know, flourishing better in the current way, the current system. Mm, you mean like, like people who are making change or like sort of setting out an example of a better way to live or something like not just your own personal self-development. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I could speak a little bit more about this. I think Colin is being appropriately diplomatic about it, but um, <laughs> when I left mainstream academia I felt like the institutions that we have developed and created and the ones that we worship are based in money and power, um, specifically around achievement and um, kind of ego-based power. And even the best science that we do is at, at its core fueling a version of humanity that is 
the opposite of mysticism. That's the opposite of a compassionate and kind of religious life. And, you know, it's tricky because you have kind of fundamentalist religion on one extreme, which causes a lot of suffering. And then you have fundamentalist science or materialism on the other, and that causes a lot of suffering. And so I think we're at a point where we know we have these powerful tools that have been around forever, but so far haven't been, you know, used in a way that could actually change the course of human history. Like they've kind of always been there in the underground or uh, often um, erased through the kind of spread of empire and colonialism. But these tools are still there. The psychedelic plants are still around. Some of the new chemicals are, you know, obviously have never been seen before. But I don't think anyone has, you know, Leary and Alpert tried in the beginning, but I think they didn't have a lot of cultural support. And so they kind of made a lot of mistakes, but they really were trying to change the course of human history through LSD. And then eventually, you know, Alpert became Ramdas and tried to do it through, through meditation and compassion. But collectively, I don't think the psychedelic community has ever sat down and said, okay, like, how can we actually change the course of human history? And just for me, I just feel like suffering and suffering and self-centeredness is so rampant and it's destroying the planet. And I think we need to do something pretty soon, if not immediately. Otherwise, I don't think there will be much left that we want to participate in as a species. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to me like a very critical turning point, And that was part of what led me away from the institution that I was working within. Um, and it's kind of taken me a while to articulate all of that. I, you know, it started off as I was very upset with kind of the specific details of what I was involved in. Like, how can we be studying mystical experience, but not living by those principles as people? And like, how can we care so much about our volunteers and be studying gratitude and forgiveness and compassion as outcome measures, but not actually caring about our work colleagues in that way? Mm-hmm. So it was very, it was very hard for me at a, at a personal level. But then I came to understand that it's just these, it's our whole system and these institutions that devalue those kind of aspects of being a human. And so I think it's an experiment. I don't know if psychedelics can 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 like fit the bill. I mean, it's I think it's a it's it's an experiment worth testing. But um, you know whether psychedelics can make you a better person, whether they can actually fuel a religious life. Um, Remains to be seen. I mean, I think obviously in, in the course of, you know, previous cultures, certainly certain sacraments that were psychedelic were the fuel for a religious life. But it was always a small segment of the population, you know, it was always a small group of people, um, even in the cultures that used psychedelics and accepted them, except for some of the ayahuasca churches that have really become established more recently, I mean, it wasn't everyone in the tribe using these substances. It wasn't everyone using them all the time. It was always kind of for specific reasons. And mostly the shaman was the one who kind of was outside of the society as in, you know, a liaison with the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think we've ever seen a culture where psychedelics had the potential to be used by every, every healthy person. And what that actually means for the functioning of a society. I'm curious. I, I'd really like to hear about Colin's experience that he alluded to earlier and how you were able to help him. And then 
maybe about like what are you all doing together right now to sort of address some of these issues that you're talking about or, or what has your approach to that been? Sure. Um, in a nutshell, I had an experience where I call it like ego to solution. We're just like a lot of your ideas and concepts, a lot of my ideas and concepts and beliefs and everything kind of just uh, dissolved. And I was very lucid during this is while I was on LSD and um, I felt like I had a sense of like clarity with what I should be doing and also a lot of like um, emotional clarity on relationships in my life. But uh, it kind of got off track when I stopped like sleeping after that and uh, was also just very Basically, I had like a filter removed and it kind of stayed removed even after I came down from the LSD. And there's parts of it that were good, parts of it were bad, but it felt like I was like temporarily enlightened or something like that. Or uh, like the self that the ego that usually was driving things and insecure was kind of um, a passenger rather than the driver. And it was a very different mind that I had for like a month or two. And I had so much energy that I felt like I really could help change the world. Um, and I got inspired to perhaps start a new country just altogether, not by like necessarily taking this one down, but just kind of building one on the side as an alternative, because a lot of times you don't have good exemplars of people or examples of systems that would be alternatives to our current one. Mm. So, Anyways, I basically entered a manic episode according to psychiatry and parts of it were definitely manic in character, but they had an internally spiritual feeling to them. And a lot of people were freaked out and did not reach out a hand to me. And Catherine not only reached out her hand to help me and talk to me about what I was going through, but really supported uh, me and also listen to what I was saying rather than dismissing it as uh, you're just coming down from a trip or you're manic or something, like actually like listening to what I was saying and making it feel like I wasn't just crazy for, you know, wanting to change things. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so um, I ended up in a mental hospital eventually, which, you know, uh, partly is due, I think, because our culture lacks healthy environments for someone to that's one of the risks of using psychedelics is that you have sudden spiritual realizations or something deep about yourself. And if you go back to the containers you're usually in that aren't supportive of that, it can, you got to kind of incubate those experiences and insights somewhere. And Catherine was really the only real thing I had, only person I had that was, sensitive to those and uh, helpful with that because most of the people I would speak to or the psychiatry ward I went into didn't really care about, <clears throat> you know, that I felt like I lost myself or saw the truth of Buddhism and I feel like uh, inspired to change things. So that really tightened our bond. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Colin's experience happened at an interesting point in my own spiritual trajectory, I had, uh, you know, in a very short period of time, less than five years, I had had a spontaneous death experience uh, after meeting 
a particular Zen teacher. My sister died of breast cancer, which was the most important event in my entire life and also extremely religious and mystical, also sober. Mm. Um, I had left my job and kind of went on pilgrimage and the soul searching and then became a mom. And so it's like I was kind of I was trying to live by the principles that I had seen through those peak experiences and just found it was really, really, really hard. And along the way, I had always had these kind of spiritual elders who appeared out of nowhere to help me. And, you know, one of them was this um, mushroom shaman. Another one was a very long-term Buddhist, you know, American woman, but trained in Buddhism. And it was just very, very, very clear how many times I could have completely gone off the deep end without any chance of recovery if I hadn't had these people who decided to kind of show up and just walk along the path with me and offer what they had, offer their knowledge, offer their sympathy and their and their help. And and so I had just done a Zen retreat and on that retreat integrated so much of what I had gone through in those previous, you know, four years. And the message that came out of that was that love is the one thing that if you give it away, it not only benefits others, but it feeds back and benefits you. And anything else that you give away, you often don't, you know, see it come back to you. And certainly if you take love, if you're just trying to take it anywhere you can, it's not going to flow back out. But if you start the circuit by, by giving it away, it flows back to you. And it, it's like the best feed for feed, you know, feed forward loop that there is. And that basically committing my mind to nonviolence was the way to start that, that cycle. And so then when Colin kind of appeared on my path, you know, we had met about six months prior, but when he appeared, it was very, I didn't even, you know, hesitate in seeing his experience and him as, um, I don't know what the term for it is in Hinduism. They kind of talk about avatars, but it's not that it's like someone who is temporarily depicting or enacting a divine message for you. Mm -hmm. And basically showing up to be like as a test, as like a spiritual test. Mm. And not that the person knows what they're doing. It's not like there's some secret person <laughs> manipulating all of us and like, okay, now Colin's going to go and have this experience to test Catherine. It's not like that. But in a way, I just saw it as like, clearly this is now where I have to practice what I learned. And so if not for the experiences I had had, I don't know that I would have helped him because... As Colin said, it was some of what he went through was scary. It was confusing. And I think a lot of people just kind of pushed it away. Mm -hmm. And instead for me, even though I was still concerned and I didn't know if I was going to do the right thing or help him in the right way, I just had to do it because, you know, it was like, it was just in the back with the backdrop of all that I had gone through. It was so clear why it was happening. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. Like, could you, yeah, could, I think something Colin and I have talked about is like, could you create a community where everyone is in that space? And so it's very easy to get support when you're going through something like that. Or are we just kind of stuck right now in a space where an individual has an experience and hopefully, luckily, someone will step up and support them? Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think that's kind of where we're trying to develop 
our mutual interest now is, you know, through Colin and the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society and through my teaching and psychedelic education work is like, how can we create this, this network of people that can actually support each other when exactly when people have experiences that don't, you know, that don't fit into our normal cultural expectations. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that in some ways, because I'm, I'm just thinking about him in other cultures like that have ayahuasca ceremonies or like the mushroom ceremony that you are part of. There's like a shaman, like you said, who who serves that role, who is like familiar with that territory and knows how to assist people in navigating it when it when it occurs or when they sort of find themselves plunged into it. And it seems like there is something going on right now around us rediscovering or coming back in connection with um, some of these ancient ceremonies or rituals or whatever around psychedelics. And there's like a need for, I don't know if shaman is the right word, but um, it doesn't have to be like in that sort of that sort of um, you've got one person up on a pedestal context, but like for people who can help shepherd and support one another as they go through these ego dissolution experiences that happen not just with psychedelics, but, you know, like they can happen in intensive meditation retreats and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the scariest and most psychedelic experiences have happened to me on meditation retreats or spontaneously through breath meditation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in one sense, it's easier if it happens when you're on drugs, because at least people kind of superficially understand like, oh, if you're, if you're on a, if you're, if you have a chemical in your system, it can make you see things very differently. But then when the chemicals out of your system, you can pretty much be assured that things will go back to normal. But when it happens, when you're sober, you have to accept that maybe that's exactly how reality is rather than just a temporary detour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of it being easier, I mean, that's a a criticism I hear all the time that, oh, taking psychedelics is just a shortcut to, to experiences that take other people years and years of meditation to get to, um, you know, is that, is that good or is that bad? I don't, you know, can you speak to that a little? (laughs) I'd like to speak to that. I don't have a, a lot of experience with a long-term spiritual practice. I have engaged with them for like months at a time or something, just like a daily practice. But um, a lot of times psychedelic experiences are difficult and troubling. And rather than a shortcut, I think the better word is like a sneak preview because a shortcut implies that you've like arrived, but uh, it's more of like a a sneak preview. It feels like at least of what, Mm would happen with a sustained spiritual practice. But often those can be even more um, disturbing. They're, they're pretty, they can be very disturbing because once you have, once you see, you know, once you feel like unending love for everyone, strangers, people who normally would bother you or disgust you or something, once you actually feel love for everyone and it kind of, goes away it makes like an imprint on you that is hard to forget and if you're doing if you're having those experiences but through a sustained spiritual practice you at least already have both the identity as a spiritual practitioner and the support surrounding the support context such as like a a teacher 
and people who've gone through similar experiences and um, a community. And a lot of those support contexts and also like identity as a person who uses psychedelics to further their spiritual growth doesn't really uh, exist, in, at least in a healthy way, in, uh, in our current culture. You know, it's seen as something frivolous or fleeting or not genuine. And I think what Catherine and I are interested in is providing more of that context for people who, because I, I would say we both agree that psychedelics without spiritual practice is not only potentially not useful, but maybe even harmful. Um, mm. But one thing, a lot of the mystical practices I've read about, like through Thomas Keating or centering prayer practices, or even Thomas Merton's like idea of true self and all that, a lot of those descriptions of the spiritual path or experience of those practices is very similar to the experience people have on, say, ayahuasca, for example, like going through a lot of undigested emotional baggage and kind of releasing it. And the idea with centering prayer is like you get to a place of silence and like the Holy Spirit or God helps you kind of in a gradual way process things that you've not sat down to process before. And it's really analogous to what people or similar to what people explain happening when they take ayahuasca. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just have to say as someone who practiced centering prayer for several years, and I've also done like, you know, 10 day Vipassana retreats as well as ayahuasca ceremonies. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely a lot of the same things going on. Ayahuasca felt like it was, I mean, a 10 day Vipassana retreat felt like it was a supercharged way to do it. Um, ayahuasca really felt like it was supercharged in a lot of ways. Although I had, you know, the shaman who was there with me who was helping to sort of like be a support that, w- mm-hmm. that was, I think, helpful. And it was interesting, like after I had my own ayahuasca experiences, I really had the sense like, like I'm not going to do this again for a while because it was almost more than I could handle. <laughs> Um, and I need to make sure that I'm like, like just doing my spiritual practices to help ground myself before I, I'm ready to engage with psychedelics again. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Rebecca, that's such a good point. I, you know, we did, um, Colin and I organized and are teaching a class right now where we're helping people establish intentions and self-care and integration practices around psychedelic experiences so that they can kind of be smarter about what they're going through. But also I think my hunch and Colin's hunch is that if you have a spiritual practice and clear intention and also integration kind of structure set up for yourself, that you're more likely to not just benefit yourself, but benefit others. Mm. And so kind Mm -hmm. of helping people start with the understanding that it's not just a one-off experience, but that there's a whole support network that you can create around a psychedelic experience that you can have a single psychedelic experience and it will help you, but how much, how long will it help you? In what ways will it change your life and does, will it ever impact anyone else? And so a lot of that was guided by a study we did at Hopkins where people developed a daily meditation practice before they took psilocybin 
a lot of them for the first time, mm-hmm. and then kept up with that practice as well as other spiritual techniques for four months after the psilocybin experience. And so we basically found that psilocybin on its own, if you have a mystical experience, it can change you in lots of positive ways. So that's great. But in addition, if you have a daily meditation practice and are getting support from either a therapist or a group of people who've gone through this similar experience, that that whole package produces the most benefits in terms of things like measures of forgiveness and gratitude and compassion for others and spiritual mm, wow. growth. And so it was kind of a, it was a breakthrough study. It didn't get a lot of attention, I think, because, you know, the press knows how to talk about, oh, it made it anxiety, it decreased anxiety in cancer patients. Mm-hmm. Like that's a very clear finding. We understand how that works, but it's like, wait, you're, you're teaching people how to become spiritual through a drug and like here, we're going to outline how we did that. Right. So it didn't, it hasn't gotten as much attention, but I think it's one of the more important studies that has been done. Well, and two, it seems like part of the problem, I mean, I say this being a nurse and seeing the way the sort of medical research system works is that ultimately a big driver of scientific research is how do we monetize this and <laughs> make it like, as like, how do we like, you know, how do we just give people a pill that fixes all their problems that'll make us a lot of money, you know? Um, there's maybe not as much incentive to develop the sort of community-based supports sometimes that really help people grow in the long term. Right. And I think to the head researcher's credit, I was trying to convince him to use a mindfulness-based breathing practice that had been established already in the scientific literature, mm-hmm. like mindfulness-based stress reduction or mm-hmm. um, some of these kind of very common mindfulness techniques. And he really wanted to give people, he didn't want to shy away from saying that it was about developing a spiritual practice. Mm. And so a lot of people ended up doing something not quite like centering prayer, but it was like they would, um, they would memorize a passage of scripture from whatever religion, you know, meant a lot to them. And that was the focus of their meditation practice every morning. And so I remember just, it was, it was kind of interesting to me to see that work so well, because my initial instinct, having been trained as a scientist, was like, let's just pick the technique that has already been studied mm-hmm. so that people understand the findings when when the yeah. study's done. And, you know, the the head researcher, he was like, well, we want to really know what it takes to create a spiritual life. Mm-hmm. So let's try oh, and crazy. see, you know, like use the platform of science to see if we can make people, you know, from just like regular people to spiritual people. That seems like kind of a big move. And I've been curious, like, if science can recreate these mystical experiences, does that in any way delegitimize sacred experiences? Oh, right. I mean, yeah, there's a lot that came up when you asked about the shortcut question. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wanted to touch on two points. I think the way that it's misunderstood by religious leaders, and I've heard so many people say this, especially in the Buddhist community, is that psychedelics are like taking people on a helicopter ride to the top of Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, get to experience being at this great height, and but they haven't worked for it or they haven't had to kind of go through the tasks and rites of passage to actually make it to that height. And it's unfortunate because I do think that that kind of illustrates that they really don't understand how psychedelics work. So that's unfortunate. Or they're just jealous. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Maybe. I mean... 
On the other hand, my Zen teacher and I have talked about this, and he said his understanding, and he's seen it work not very often. He said about one in a hundred monks in a very serious monastic environment will achieve complete enlightenment in a very short period of time. And he said that a week is all it takes to achieve the kind of awakening that we're you know, studying with psychedelics. And so he said most people don't achieve that because they don't believe that they can or they can't pay attention that well. But he said if you are able to follow the technique for a full week, you already have like a shortcut. You already have a very quick way of attaining awakening. And so he said if people already can't even do the week-long version, why would we expect that a psychedelic experience would also promote like long-term change? And so he was kind of being a little bit skeptical. He said, you know, we know how to give people these experiences, but no one has yet figured out on a mass scale how to make it something that is sustainable. And so I would say psychedelics can be a shortcut, but I don't think they solve hardly any of the problems that arise after the experience is over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that is where I think we're kind of taking from the various religious traditions and saying, like, what works in the modern world you know, knowing that people, most people are not going to become monks, you know, are not going to just mm-hmm. give up their life to join a, a commune of people taking ayahuasca all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I, I hear a lot of integration. And I think that that's been happening in a lot of different ways. And it, it sounds like psychedelics can sort of play a certain role, just like I mean, I guess like what I'm thinking of is um, people who are like interfaith or interspiritual um, or like you said at the beginning, like you were, you're, I don't know if you still are a Christian or if you would call yourself a Christian, but you like grew up in a Christian faith. That's correct, right, Catherine? It is correct. And and then yeah, you integrated Buddhist practices and you've integrated psychedelics. Like they all kind of hold different pieces yeah, absolutely. And it's hard for me to choose. It's hard for me to choose one because they've all been so, I think the teachings of Christ's life are some of the best stories that have ever been told. Mm-hmm. And humans are story making machines. And so it's like we need stories to hold our experience and to be able to transmit it to others. And the stories, if you really hear the stories of what Christ was trying to teach, and what his life was. And even in his death, it's hard for me to just say, well, someone could just skip those stories and just learn Buddhism and they'd be fine. Because I feel like mm-hmm. Buddhism has some pretty good stories, but they're not great stories. Most of the stories you hear them and you're like, and? Like, <laughs> or you're like trying to solve a complete, them. Like, <laughs> like you're trying right. To- it's just like, it's like a very analytical, intellectual approach to mm-hmm enlightenment when it's just like it doesn't satisfy that like very human element mm. of storytelling yeah. um and then the psych the psychedelics i just i don't think either christianity or buddhism has has realized what a gap it is for people not to have a direct experience of god mm-hmm. yeah. or they assume that you can get it through all these different you just you know you keep showing up and eventually god will show up and i unfortunately for a lot of people that's not the case yeah. Well, and historically, at least in Christianity, there's been like a fear of allowing people to have a direct experience with God, which is why a lot of times the mystics were sort of persecuted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we were just, we just released this episode on theopoetics, um, which is all about like creativity and spirituality and how these like more embodied practices and, um, and mystical experiences are often like marginalized or 
pushed down because you can't control people <laughs> when they like are having their own experience of God, you know, and not listening to your, your theologies or what you're preaching. Doctrine and dogma. Yeah. 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 Um, I did have one question about ayahuasca, um, which is, is it culturally appropriate to be doing ayahuasca ceremonies in the U.S. with, you know, non-native practitioners? It's a good question. I The thing that comes up immediately, this good friend of mine who's a, he's not a scientist, but he's one of the visionaries who kind of helped start a lot of the early psychedelic studies or like the renaissance of the psychedelic work. And he, he said only somewhat jokingly that the most sustainable and ethical way for a Westerner to take ayahuasca is to grow their own mushrooms. Mm. And so in a way it is hard for me to see so many Westerners uh, taking ayahuasca so much when it's not part of our culture. And there are such great alternatives that are still not necessarily part of our culture, but they're closer. You know, it's like, in a lot of parts of the United States, mushrooms grow naturally. Anyone can grow them in a closet. And so if you're talking about, and then of course, LSD is definitely part of our culture. So if you're mm-hmm. talking about drugs that are not appropriating other cultures, there are, there are great options. It's not like there are no options. So we have to go for ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've just seen so many people kind of uh, just run into a lot of trouble either having an ayahuasca experience in the States with shamans who aren't trained or going down to a really great place with a great shaman and then not being able to return to their life afterward. Hmm. It's interesting, my own experience, because I I kind of struggled with that question before doing it. Um, I met someone just sort of organically who is a a Mexican woman who has um, studied with Mayan shamans, and that's kind of like her her tradition that she grounds herself in, but who had had an ayahuasca experience and spent a lot of time in Peru learning from, um, interestingly, the male shamans would not teach her to do ayahuasca, but she found this, what she calls like the grandmothers who are kind of like these curandera figures um, who said, oh, you know, the men are so patriarchal. They don't, they don't believe in teaching a woman to give it ayahuasca until they've gone through menopause. But they said, <laughs> we'll teach you. So she spent like a long time with these, these women learning to do it. And she felt like for her, it was really a calling and that people here in the West or in the, I should say in America, need it. And, or mm. that, that it's like a medicine that like wants to be given to people here. So I, you know, I, I did do a few sessions with her, um, and it felt like the right thing at the right time. But I've, you know, one of the challenges for me is that there aren't a lot of, um, like you can, you can get LSD or mushrooms, but figuring out how to do it in a sort of curated environment where you have the support that you get from a shaman is a little bit trickier. And so I think if one of those opportunities, like an opportunity to do psychedelics in that way with mushrooms or something like that had presented it to me myself, then I would have taken that. But Mm -hmm. because this was the person who came into my life and it felt like it was the right time, I did ayahuasca with Mm -hmm. her. But I I have struggled with like, I did have this sense after I did it and I did a one night ceremony with her and then later I did a three night ceremony. Um, I kind of heard clearly like, ayahuasca is not your path, (laughs) Mm. which was really interesting. So 
and I've had the opportunity to do it since then with like sort of a collective of people who are doing it in more of like community circle um, way. And I think they get theirs from Hawaii and I haven't, it just hasn't felt right. So I'm still, I'm still struggling and wrestling with that question. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say congratulations for struggling and wrestling with the question and also trusting your instinct that what you're describing sounds different than that kind of what I've seen a pattern of very kind of like selfish. Um, and it could be, and you know, it's like people are suffering. So they, they're yeah. looking for help and they're like kind of desperately seeking for something that will help them. And I've seen that, you know, where something kind of came to you and it felt right. It's like, I've seen people just kind of like going after ayahuasca, just like it's some other yeah. commodity that they can just yeah. ingest more and more and more and it will somehow fix them and not understanding mm -hmm. the kind of deeper relationship there. Totally. Mm-hmm. But it can happen with anything. Yeah. It's not just ayahuasca. It could happen with meditation or yoga or like, you yeah. know, it's like, right. what what have you done for me lately? My spiritual right. practice. Right. Well, and like anything, you know, I was talking with a friend about this the other day about like anything really is a tool that can be used for good or for ill. Like I read once that mm -hmm. Rupert Murdoch meditates every day, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so like, yeah. And, and it's, it's almost become like mindfulness has become like this brain hack that like will increase your productivity mm -hmm. and, you know, and serve the needs of the capitalist system. Right. There's been a lot of pushback around all of this stuff. I mean, even I was telling some friends of mine about, um, doing this episode and they were just like, oh my God, psychedelics are just so risky and people just lose their minds and, um, and people need like steady practice and, and religion, <laughs> you know? And I was like, well, you go into the Catholic church deep enough or even maybe not deep enough and you could be molested by a priest. Like, like these aren't like yeah. equal arguments to me, you know, it's like all of these things have been you, you'll find good and bad. It's funny because a lot of the uh, people in the psychedelic scene are also similarly against kind of not spiritual practice, but like religions outright, like mm -hmm. um, the Bible or other sacred texts. Um, and they have good reasons to be against kind of organized religion. But I do think sometimes both like the spiritual groups that come from a religious background and the spiritual groups that have the psychedelic background kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater sometimes. And yeah. I, I do mm -hmm. see part of my mission is in life is to kind of bridge those gaps and get those conversations going. I, I don't know if this is a something new in the 21st century or if it's something that's been going on and I just haven't done enough research, but the idea of religion or spirituality um, you know, two words that normally aren't well-defined anyways, but the idea that they are actually good for you or they can, they can make you more free. That's counterintuitive for a lot of people. Like religion and freedom seem to be like, um, opposites, mm -hmm. but, uh, back to the cultural appropriation thing, I, I do see how it could be offensive for using another culture's kind of spiritual practice by Westerners. But at the same time, I think, an important part of spirituality and religion is that it's, it's meant to be universal. It's meant to connect people mm -hmm. on a global scale and with globalization happening. I do think the cultural appropriation question is like, it's useful, but I think that it can kind of help us heal if we like 
the barriers between us and different cultures if we realize like, hey, all of us humans have traumas that we're trying to heal and trying to overcome. I, I think both the spiritual groups and the psychedelic groups need to see each other's practices as uh, legitimate. I think the religion, the benefit you get from having like kind of more religious background is kind of a conservatism and uh, discipline, either with a practice or with having a certain kind of moral code, which I think is uh, underappreciated in the spiritual path. And then, and a lot of times in the, the psychedelic communities, I notice like people will be doing kind of ad hoc theology or something although they're describing what divinity is like or how to get closer to it and it just seems like there is a adverse reaction to basically they need to i think both groups could incorporate each other's kind of dispositions in a mm-hmm. good way learn from each other totally totally well along these lines i mean colin and i have talked about explicitly starting um a spiritual kind of community group that explores the relationship between use of psychedelics and the development of a of spiritual religious life. Mm-hmm. And mm. it's very early on. We've kind of just like the, the spark kind of was started probably toward the end of last summer after a lot of Colin's experience and just both of us kind of expressing a need to do something other than sit around and just talk about psychedelics, but really like, okay, I've been, you know, I've had a meditation practice. I've done Buddhist retreats. Colin knows about Christianity. There's got to be other people out here who are asking these same questions. Like, how can my psychedelic experiences inform my spiritual life? And so Mm -hmm. we've thought about that on the one hand. I think another future project that I'm excited about, it sounds like it's very far in the future, but in about two years, uh, Vince Horn, uh, he and his wife started Buddhist Geeks a number of years ago, and now they've developed a kind of meditation platform online. And we're going to be teaching, co-teaching a mushroom retreat for meditators. And okay. so oh, wow. in a legal setting in Jamaica. And it was funny because the idea came to me while I was in Jamaica. And separately, Vince was on a Buddhist retreat and the idea came to him and we had had no contact for months. So we're like, we, this has to be a good idea because neither of us actually thought of it. Like obviously the idea came from something else. Yeah. Um, but wow. these are going to be controversial experiments, right? Cause it's like, mm-hmm. as Colin pointed out, especially Buddhism, there are a lot of Buddhists who are very opposed to the use of psychedelics. They see it as destructive and intoxicating and ego boosting in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the psychedelic people don't want to be told what to do. And like Buddhism is a lot about telling you <laughs> right. how to live your life. And so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, it's funny because I just see the positives in both. And I just, I've, the yeah. more I spend time with the Buddhist people, I try to convince them to like relax <laughs> and be okay with taking psychedelics. Yeah. And the psychedelic people, I'm constantly asking them to stop taking psychedelics <laughs> so much and meditate. And so no one it's it's not a it's not a fun place to be in the middle of those different groups but that's so interesting yeah. <laughs> i can relate to that feeling of being struck my i mean i've had some experience too with buddhist communities but my primary community is more christian contemplative communities which they also have all the same um the same judgments about psychedelics and anything that like they think is like not 
structured enough or not doesn't it doesn't exist within these safe boundaries that that, that exist for a reason mm-hmm. you know like those those sort of structures and boundaries exist for a reason um and also i find myself sometimes in like these like way more um not even always people doing psychedelics, but just like people who are more woo-woo, for lack of a better word, that are just like doing all the like talking to all the spirits and doing all the um, all the sort of like psychic and mystical practices and things like that. And they're sometimes like, we don't want anything to do with this like uptight religion. So um, that's one thing I think Catherine and I are to your point, like the woo-woo and just kind of getting into all the spirits. And I do think we're using how charitable are you towards others and helping society as kind of a litmus test for the success of a spiritual practice mm-hmm. and the use of psychedelics. Cause if it's decoupled from some political or activist aim or, you know, just, yeah. you know, helping homeless people or el- older people, like that's when psychedelic community can kind of get, um, a little too obsessed. Like it's good to heal traumas from your past and to free yourself. But I think it can get a little self-absorbed when you're, you know, healing your past life traumas and like revisiting all these different spirits and it can get really decoupled from, um, bringing about a different way of the world. And I think that's where I think Buddhism is kind of like the container for like a spiritual practice and psychedelics are kind of like, for me, or shamanism, kind of like a uh, help you if you get kind of stuck and can recharge your practice mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. push it forward. And then to me, at least, uh, Christianity is like what you do with everything once you're kind of mm-hmm. free or enlightened, like uh, bringing about the the kingdom of God for wow, lack yeah. of a better phrase. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. And I think that's a great place for us to sort of end and just turn to Mm -hmm. our conclusion if you guys have a few more minutes we like to end our podcast by asking um for recommendations uh about what is a nourishing or inspiring you right now and that can be like a book a movie a piece of art a practice um you know whatever it is Uh, and i'm wondering if you could tell us colin what's nourishing or inspiring you right now hmm great question um I've been getting very nourished by discovering the contemplative current in Christianity. I was raised Catholic and I kind of just dismissed that after my psychedelic experiences. But um, yeah, finding like Richard Rohr and Thomas Merton, I think Chelsea turned me on to Richard Rohr. Uh, it's been really kind of nourishing for these to find that there's people also out there like mystics um, treading their their descriptions of like experiences are a lot more kind of uh, illustrious and textured than a lot of the psychedelic kind of descriptions of the divine mm-hmm. I'll read, hmm. and that's been really kind of nourishing. It feels like there's like some backing behind this exploration I'm doing. Mm. I love that you're doing that integration. That's amazing. What about you, Catherine? Well. Um... I have to say I've kind of fallen off this practice in the extremely cold weather that we've had the last couple (laughs) months. But um, Mm -hmm. I started this in the fall and without going into into too much detail, it's basically a Druid practice and learning it from, you know, an actual Druid (laughs) where basically you go out into an area with a lot of trees and you learn how to ask permission 
to approach a particular tree and how you get closer and closer and respect the tree's consent, whether you keep going or you just come back another time or go somewhere else. And then if you get consent all the way up, then you can actually sit with your back against the tree and without any further instruction, just simply be in company with the tree. And the first time I did this, I was amazed in in kind of subtle ways how much the tree communicated with me and related to me through completely, you know, nonverbal, non-intellectual, not even contemplative uh, methods. And that was, it was kind of, it was illuminating and like, oh, you know, all this like human-centered practice and just sitting with a tree for a very short period of time really shifted my perspective. And so you're supposed to basically do the practice every single day for a year and a day. And it just goes to show me how human-centered I am that I can't even figure out how to visit a tree every day, you know. But I think... um, I want to share that practice just because I, I, the, the, I think there are ways of communing with nature that are not either meditative or religious or psychedelic, but you know, learning directly from trees and plants can be really awesome. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that practice. Yeah, thank you. What about you, Chelsea? Um, well, also in the cold weather, I've been um, trying to keep my body moving, which can be a challenge sometimes. And so I have two physical practices that have been uh, really nourishing lately. And one is almost every day. I wouldn't say every day I do, um, yoga with Adrian online. It's uh, the, she has this, uh, this woman has a series of, uh, YouTube videos with, (laughs) with, um, with yoga practices that I really like. And, um, and then the other one is that I've been taking these, um, these dance classes, they're like dance fitness classes, Mm -hmm. uh, at a place here in Brooklyn called Kukua. And, um, it's kind of like, um, Zumba, but it's African inspired music. And I mean, it's literally like a tour of Africa. It's not just like one country of Africa that I'm calling, you know, it's like representative of all of Africa. Um, and we do dances from all of these different countries and, um, and it's really, really fun. And it's like keeping me keeping me alive in these cold, dark winter months here in the Northeast. Hmm. What about you, Rebecca? Well, I actually, I think I shared about this on Facebook the other day. I, um, through, for various reasons, started doing Tai Chi recently. And I went thinking like Tai Chi is like exercise for old people, right? And it's going to be really easy. Because it's just like the slow movement. <laughs> that, like, and I went to the, um, there's like a nonprofit Tai Chi studio here in Tacoma. I went to the class and of course I was like the youngest person there. And they like made a point of it. And I was like, okay. And it's super hard. And what's really interesting mm-hmm. to me is I, we talked about this in the episode about feeling like you're sort of being a bridge between two two different worlds or paradigms and trying to integrate some different things. And I feel like that's what my life has been all about is about sort of trying to hold on to two different paradigms or polarities and figuring out how to integrate them. And what Tai Chi is really giving me is an embodied way of doing that. (laughs) Um, Because you do have to like be able to do movements with your arms and also with your legs that are very specific. And I'm having a really hard time doing them all at the same time. And uh, and I was like, 
like, oh, this is this is interesting. There's a reason I was led to take up Tai Chi, which it was, mm. wasn't because I was interested. It was essentially because I got a message that I should do Tai Chi, and I was like, I'm going to take it seriously. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that is what is nourishing me right now. And this conversation also really nourished me, and I'm really mm. grateful to you, Catherine and Colin, for being here and talking to us. Yeah, thanks thank you so for having much. us. Yeah, thank you. It was really great fun. All right. All right. If you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism, check out listentotherising.com. And even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time on The Rising. The Rising.